in a way, what, uh, what we've been doing the last number of weeks has actually been building to today's message. Uh, because we've been, since December, we have been looking at stories from the life of Jesus, and we've been seeing Him do incredible things, feeding crowds and calming the storm and healing uh, the sick and even raising the dead. And what we've discovered as we're, we're reading these stories from the Jesus Storybook Bible is that Jesus is not just a great man, He most certainly is a great man, but He is actually a great God. This Jesus is not just a human being like you and me, He is God come in the flesh. And that, that means we're driving, and, 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 and so we're driving our way to this passage because it's very connected, it's kind of the conclusion of that discovery about Jesus as this great man and a great God. This is a, a short passage, uh, just three verses long, it might be one of the shortest passages I've ever preached on actually. Um, but it is a remarkable passage. It packs an incredible punch. It is straightforward, no doubt, but it is incredibly challenging. Uh, I have to admit that as I was looking through it and studying it and meditating on it this week, it was making me occasionally kind of squirm because it is so direct and it is so unambiguous and it is so comprehensive and absolute in what it teaches. And let me tell you what it teaches. Here's the point. The kingdom of God is so valuable that it is worth losing everything else in this life in order to have it. Let me say it again. The kingdom of God is so valuable that it is worth losing everything, and I mean absolutely everything else in this life in order to have it. And because that's the lesson, it paints you into a corner. You know what I mean? It forces you to wrestle with the value of the kingdom of God, the value of knowing Jesus in your own heart and in your own life. That's why it made me squirm. That's why it made me uneasy. You hear stories of men like... uh, the Coptic Egyptian Christians who were rounded up a number of years ago by the Muslim Brotherhood and taken to the, to the Mediterranean Sea and on the beach as they were wearing their orange jumpsuits, a knife was held to their neck and they were told, if you recant, you will live. If you don't, you will die. And every single one of them was beheaded because they refused to recant. Because to them... The value of the kingdom of God was so high that it was worth losing everything in this life in order to get it. And the question today is, what about for us? Now, if you're already starting to squirm, good. But, listen friends, if we understand this this parable properly, it's two parables, but I'm going to keep calling it this parable, if we understand it properly, it won't leave you squirming. At least that's my hope. So, let's dive in and have a look. First of all, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about, in this passage actually, he says the kingdom of heaven. I keep saying kingdom of God because, excuse me, because the other gospel writers, they all refer to it as the kingdom of God. And Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. They are the same kingdom. They're talking about the same thing. Matthew is writing primarily to Jews, 
and Jews were very sensitive about using the name of God. And so he calls it the kingdom of heaven in order not to be offensive, but he's talking about the exact same thing. What is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is not a place. It is not a geographical location. It is a reign. It is an administration. Wherever you see people submitting to God and submitting themselves to the Word of God and saying, that is what I believe and that is how I'm going to live, there you will find the kingdom of God. So in any Christian family where people say, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who lived for us and died for us, the Bible is His Word, and we are going to conduct our lives and raise our family to know God and love and serve God, there you have the kingdom of God. Any community that submits itself to the Lordship of Christ, like a church, like this church, you find the kingdom of God. But any business... It doesn't mean that the employees are all Christians, but the the business owner who says, I am a follower of Christ and I am going to conduct the affairs of my business according to the values set down by God in His Word and uh, I'm going to do that despite what the culture tells me I ought to do in order to get ahead and make a buck. There you find the kingdom of God. Wherever Jesus is acknowledged as king, you have the kingdom of God. When people say, Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. There you have the kingdom of God. Now, what the kingdom of God does is it overcomes the obstacles to everlasting life and joy in fellowship with God. So wherever Jesus is removing the obstacles to you experiencing everlasting life and everlasting joy in your life, there you are finding the kingdom of God advancing. Now, nobody does that perfectly. Nobody submits themselves entirely to the reign of Christ in their lives. But it's an ongoing thing. It's a developing thing. Grace Valley Church, when I do membership classes, I like to tell people, welcome to the greatest little lousy church in the world. And what I mean by that is, is that we have not arrived. We submit ourselves to the kingdom of God. We submit ourselves to the rule of God, but we are not fully submitting ourselves to the rule of God. That is an ongoing work of God in our lives. In my own life personally, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I would like to say that the kingdom of God is alive and reigns in my heart, but there is a lot in my life that still needs to be submitted absolutely to the reign of Christ. So don't misunderstand when we say the kingdom of God. We're not saying it's fully realized. We're not saying there it is in all its perfection. Not even close. But it's there. Now, there's two things that Jesus describes this kingdom of God or or tells us about this kingdom of God in this passage. And the first one is he, he talks to us about finding the kingdom of God. Finding the kingdom of God. And then he talks about valuing the kingdom of God. So let's go through those two things. First of all, finding the kingdom of God. Verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Now why in the world would a treasure be hidden in a field? And the answer is that in ancient times, they didn't have banks like we do. And so in order to protect their treasured possessions, people would bury their stuff. They would hide it in a field, in their backyard or whatever, because robbers might come or marauders and barbarians might come through your whole village and and pillage everything and take everything that they see. But if you've got hidden treasure, then that stuff is protected from their arrival and from them stealing it, right? And so what... um, 
what this, this man does is he's probably a hired hand, okay? He probably works for the owner of this field, and maybe he's plowing the field, and he bangs into it or something. In any case, he stumbles upon it by accident. And the point is, is that the kingdom is not obvious. The kingdom of God is not obvious. It is hidden, but it's hidden right under our noses. How many people walked past that field over the years and there was this hidden treasure in that field and they had no clue about it? It's right under our nose because that's how the kingdom of God works. Think about the king, Jesus himself. You know, Mark used Isaiah 53 during the time of confession and we didn't even talk about this ahead of time, but I was using it in my sermon as well because in Isaiah 53 we discover that Jesus was just so ordinary. He's so plain. He's so non-spectacular. This founder of this so-called great religion, this revolutionary, he was, he was not much to look at. He was kind of the boring kid in school that hung out kind of by the lockers or, or you know, in the hallway and watched everybody going by, having lots of fun, paying no attention to him. Isaiah 53 says this about him. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He didn't look like Brad Pitt. Maybe you don't think Brad Pitt's handsome. I've always thought he's crazy handsome. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. There was nothing about him that we said, hey, that's the guy we should follow. That's the guy we should set up as our leader. And look at his disciples. He had, he had the losers of the bunch, of the world. These were guys who couldn't cut it with any other rabbi, and so they had to go do manual labor. They were the cast-offs. They became Jesus' disciples. And you read through the Gospels, these guys are constantly making mistakes, constantly looking like idiots, constantly not understanding Jesus' point, constantly wanting to do the wrong thing at the right time and the right thing at the wrong time. And then Jesus himself, the great king, the founder of this great religion, he comes preaching this gospel and his life ends in a complete fizzle because he dies on a cross like a common criminal that has happened to thousands of people before him and thousands of people after him. The kingdom of God is hidden because it doesn't look through our secular or through our cultured eyes, through our non-Christian, unbelieving eyes. It does not look like anything. And the gospel itself looks like nothing to an unbelieving eye. What's the gospel? Jesus died for your sins so that if you believe in Him, God accepts you by His grace. Jesus Christ died for your sins so that if you believe in Him, God accepts you by His grace. That's the gospel. That we believe in this church and is taught by this Bible, we believe that that is the secret of the universe. We believe that it is the answer to life's mysteries. That it is the meaning to history itself and it is the fundamental, foundational answer to all your problems and to all the problems of the world. I'm not sure if you knew that, but that's what we believe. That's what the Bible teaches. It is that comprehensive. And people hear that and they go, that's it. That's the secret to life. Jesus died for my sins. If I believe in Him, God accepts me by His grace. 
That's it. That's all there is to it. Come on. The world is a complicated place. Life is a complicated enterprise and experience. I am a complicated individual. How can you say that that's all there is to it? How can that be the key to everything? Shouldn't there be more to it? Shouldn't I, shouldn't I have to do something? Shouldn't I have to climb a mountain? Or shouldn't I have to work really hard to experience enlightenment or, or, or something like that? No. That's all I have to do. Put my trust in Jesus because he died for my sins and God accepts me by his grace. That's it. Friends, it's hidden, you see. It's hidden from the world. By the way, if you know that this is the secret to life, this is, the, this is what solves all mysteries, if you believe that, do you have any idea how unbelievably blessed you are? Do you have any idea the treasure that you have? Well, no, you don't. That's why we're in this um, sermon, <laughs> of course. Now, let's move on. Okay, finding. Here's the thing, though, okay? Yeah, it's hidden right under our nose, noses, but people do find it. But they find it in different ways, which is very interesting. Here, you have this guy. He stumbles upon it, right? The guy in the field, he just kind of stumbles upon it. It's an accident. He's not looking for it. He's not like out there with a metal detector. Boop, 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 boop. Oh, look, I found a penny. No, he just bumps right into it. It's like a couple years ago, a guy went to a, um, a garage sale. This happened in England. He went to a garage sale and he saw a painting that he thought it was really nice, and he thought it was very, very, very cool. And so he dropped 300 bucks on this painting, which is big money to spend at a garage sale. He dropped 300 bucks on this painting, he gets it home, he's looking at it really, really carefully, and he sees in very faded letters in the bottom corner, it says Picasso. And he's like, what? He goes and has this thing appraised, it's worth over a million dollars. He bought it for 300 bones at a garage sale. Thought he was paying a lot for a garage sale painting. And it was worth a million dollars. That's what happened to this guy who stumbled upon this treasure in the field. He wasn't looking for it at all. And there are people out there who are not looking for the kingdom of God, who their story, if you ask them their story of salvation, they'll tell you, I was not looking for God at all. I was on my own I was living my own way. I was, I, I, things were good. I, I had no interest in spiritual things. And God just came along and bam, nailed me, kind of like the Apostle Paul. They have their dramatic sort of Damascus Road experience and, and God shows up and reveals himself to them. But contrast that with the other guy. The other guy's a pearl merchant, okay? So he is a wealthy professional. He is a treasure hunter, He's a professional treasure hunter. And he's looking for pearls. He's looking for fine pearls, which means he's got a practiced eye. He understands what he's looking for. And it says that he finds a, a pearl of great value. It was a pearl like none other. And we'll get back to that and what that means. But the point is this. He was a seeker. He knew there was a void. There was something empty. There was something he was looking for. And he found it in the end. It was way more than what he expected, but he found it in the end. And the point is, is that people find the kingdom of God in different ways. Some people stumble upon it and they weren't looking for it in the first place. Other people know that there is something out there. They think that there's something out there. They're very Star Trek about it. They're like, there's something out there. And they, they go to discover. And God is who they meet. And the kingdom of God is who they meet. And one more thing about this is that not only do people find it in different ways, but 
different people find it. Because the first guy, he's poor. He is uneducated. He is just a hired man. He's very blue-collar. Okay, And the second guy, he's wealthy and he's educated and he's very sophisticated. People sometimes say, you know, the kingdom of God is for Christianity. It's really for certain kinds of people. You know, it's, it's for gullible people, people who are able to put their brains at the door and say, oh, you know, even though it makes no sense, I believe this crazy stuff anyway. Or they say it's for weak people, you know, people who need a crutch. You know, they're going through tough things in life and they have a hard time understanding how to, how to live in the midst of their suffering. And so they grab onto religion in order to uh, strengthen themselves and, and fortify themselves through it. But what we see here is that actually, no. Christianity is for any kind of person who will recognize the kingdom and the value of the kingdom. You know, one of the reasons we do testimonies here during membership is because we want you to hear people's stories of discovering the kingdom. And even though many of you would think to yourself, well, you know, aren't the stories very similar? Because, you know, we all kind of have similar types of last names, a lot of us do, and we have similar stories, you know, growing up maybe in a Christian home and maybe... Uh, our story includes going to a Christian school, but then you actually ask people to tell their story and to think about their story and, and, then, and, then, and then articulate their story. And what they discover is, is that their story is unique. That God met them in their story, in their personal way. And, and even though we all, many of us maybe have very common histories, our personal story of our personal discovery of the kingdom of God and our relationship with Jesus is unique to us because the kingdom of God is not based on class. It's not based on ethnicity. It doesn't have a geographical center to it. You look at every other religion of the world, none of them is even remotely as ethnically diverse as Christianity. And all of them, other than Christianity, do have a geographical world cultural center because Christianity is unique. Now, that's finding the kingdom. Second point, Jesus talks about valuing the kingdom, and this is, this is the heart of the matter, okay? So if you've been semi-listening, I encourage you to try to really listen now because this is, this is the main point. You know, there are people who, they come to church, they hear sermons, they maybe even go to Bible studies and they listen to Bible stories, and they, they say, hmm, very interesting. I think I kind of like that. And I think I kind of like this. Meaning, being part of a church community and going to church on Sunday and fellowshipping with other good people, nice people in church. I, I think Christianity, I think that would be good for me. I think that would be good for me to participate in. You know, I'm I, this is how I would think if I wasn't like an actual Christian, but I, I ran into Christianity, I'd be like, I know that I need structure in my life to be, you know, even halfway useful as a human being. And one of the things that church life does is it provides structure, right? You've got to be in per places at certain times, you've got to uh, participate in certain activities, whether you like it or not, because that's just part of being part of it. And it would be good for me. And maybe, maybe there are many people who say, you know what, it's good for my kids because it's a great place for me to see uh, good, healthy values impressed upon my children. And so what they basically have is kind of a moderate, modest interest in the kingdom of God. 
They have a moderate interest in Christianity, and it's because they don't know the value of it. They don't know the value of it. Look at this guy, the first guy. What does he do? He hides the, 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 the treasure as soon as he gets it. He hides it again, and he goes home, and he sells everything he has so that he can buy the field in which that treasure is hidden. Now imagine what must have happened. Think about this. This guy, we'll call him Johnny, okay? Johnny comes home, and he says, Honey, we're putting the house up for sale. Call the realtor. And by the way, next weekend, I've already started putting up flyers. We're taking all the furniture. We're taking all uh, the china that your mother gave you on our wedding day. We're taking everything we got. We're putting it out on the lawn, and we are having a massive garage sale. And by the way, take the donkey and bring it over to Joe's, because Joe said if we ever wanted to get rid of our donkey, he would take it, and we're getting rid of that donkey. And, and on top of that, I want you to go to uh, the pawn shop with the family heirlooms. I know they've been in my family for generations, and I know they're the most valuable thing we have, and I know it's supposed to be our whole retirement fund, but I want you to take it all. I want you to bring it to Smitty, because every pawn guy is Smitty. That's his name, probably. I want you to bring it to Smitty, and I want you to sell it to Smitty. And his wife says, what? What are you talking about? Why? And he says, well, you know Jeremiah's field where I was working at, old Jeremiah's at the field? I want to buy the field. And she says, Johnny, have you lost your mind? I mean, just last week you told me you came home from work and you said that field is worth nothing. I mean, you can barely grow thistles in that field. How in the world would you do this now? And the townsfolk, they get wind of it, and they hear that Johnny has lost his mind. He is off his rocker. They're running to this great uh, fire sale at his house because he's selling all his stuff off for cheap. But they laugh at him behind his back. He's a total laughingstock in the whole community. But you know what? Johnny doesn't care. He doesn't care. The text says, in joy, he went and sold all he had. Let them laugh. The joke's on you guys. You have no idea what I have found, the value of it. And then you have the other guy, the merchant. He's probably a very wealthy man. And he's on the lookout for fine pearls, the text says, which means he's looking for good quality uh, product. But then Jesus said he found a pearl of great value. And the Greek is like, like superlative value, okay? And you can imagine he, he's, he's done all this, he's, been, he's, you know, he's living out of a suitcase and he's off to this city and then he goes to that trade show and then he heard about this way over there and off he goes there and he's tired and he hasn't seen his family in weeks and then finally he walks into this one little dumpy shop and he sees this pearl and his heart skips a beat. Because he's never seen anything like it before in his life. He is mesmerized by this thing. It is so exquisite. It glows. It dazzles. It's like, I hate to do this to you again, but in Lord of the Rings, <laughs> when anybody got a look at the ring, I know it's a bad example because the ring is bad, but forget that part, okay? If you've ever seen the movies, anybody whose eyes lock on the ring, they get almost this crazy look on their face. Because their desire becomes insatiable because this thing is just so beautiful. It is radically beautiful to them. And this merchant, he liquidates his assets 
in order to get that pearl. Now, understand something. The point of the parable is not that you can buy the kingdom. Don't push the parable beyond its intentions, all right? Every other part of the Bible tells you that you can only receive the kingdom as a gift by faith. That's not the point of the, of the story. The story is, the, the point of the story is the value of the kingdom. Seeing Christ as the treasure that He is. You have to see that He is worth anything and everything to get your hands on because that is the only way that you will do what these guys did. Sell everything in order to, to get this treasure? Think of everything that you have. Think of everything that's dear to you. Think of everything that matters to you. Think of all the things that you say in your life, like, at least I've got that. I'm so thankful I have that. If I didn't have that, man, oh man, I don't know where I'd be. It's the non-negotiables in your life. Think of all those things. See, oftentimes, I think, I suspect that Christians go through their lives and they're sort of always looking over their shoulder at the things that they've had to give up for Jesus. And they kind of lament it. You know, oh man, I used to be able to do this. I used to be able to do that. I used to have those things. Or you look at the world, you look at the culture around you and you think, you think, these are the things that the culture says brings pleasure and joy and happiness in life and, and you have to deny yourself those things. And you think, man, you know, I really feel the burden of my faith. It's quite a cross to bear to have to sacrifice all these good things, these fun things that are out there. But, you know, hey, that's what you got to do because it's the cost of, of mission, it's the price of admission. You know, what are you going to do? If you want to get to the kingdom of God, if you want to have Jesus as your Savior, if you want to die and go to heaven and not go to hell, well, hey, this is what you got to do. So you do what you got to do. There is none of that in this parable at all. Enjoy. He sold all he had. This guy is whistling a tune while he digs in the closet for the for sale sign and steps out on the lawn and bonk, 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 bonk. He is like, woo-hoo-hoo, whistle while you work, while he's pulling his stuff out, his prized possessions, and putting them on the table and say, for sale, OBO. For sale or best offer. Best offer. He's not, he's not weighed down by it. He is like the Apostle Paul. You know, the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament. He was a rabbi. He was an up-and-coming rabbi. He was a, a star on the rise. This guy was taught by some of the best rabbis. He had a career path that was like straight to the stars. He was going to swing with the elites. He was going to have a reputation among the people that was beyond compare. He was really going somewhere. And then he met the kingdom of then he met Jesus and he became part of the kingdom of God. And you know what happened? He lost it all. His career stratus, like going into the stratosphere, boom, plunged back to earth and made a massive, massive crater in the heart of it. Probably lost his family, probably lost his friends because he's turned his back on their religion and in their minds, their culture and their everything. And listen to what Paul says about this in Philippians chapter 3. 
Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Listen to this. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. Man. You've got to understand here, friends. You know what Jesus is asking us? You know what I'm asking you? I'm not asking you if you believe in Jesus. I'm asking you, do you adore Jesus? When you think of Him, does your heart flutter with longing? Does your heart melt with adoration? And joy. We've been spending all these weeks looking at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. When you see his compassion for Jairus and his daughter, when you see him flex his spiritual muscles, exerting power over the storm, when you see him feeding an entire multitude of people with just five loaves and two fish, making food out of nothing, out of the air, basically. When you, when you see him enduring 40 days of starvation and temptation by the devil himself, pure evil in the face of, of Jesus, day in and day out, saying, come on, come on, you, it's okay, you can do it, just one little time, trying to wear him down, and he resisted and resisted and resisted. When you, when you see him go to that cross, and you see him hanging with his arms spread wide, and he is facing eternal justice for your sin. When you think about his faithfulness to you, you know how faithless you are to him. You know you can't go 20 minutes without bailing on him in some way, even a small way. And he is never, he has never left your, left your side. Never once has he said, I am sick and tired of that pain in the rear promising again and again, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, I'm on your side, I'm on your team, I'm in your kingdom, and then as soon as something shiny comes along, whoosh, they're gone. And then they come back again, oh, I'm sorry, can we try it all again? Jesus never does that. He doesn't look at you that way. He doesn't look at you with a face of disappointment and think, man, you know, I always thought you were going to be better, but you're just kind of okay, and I guess I'll have to let you in because I let you in, and I don't want to kick you out again because that wouldn't be very nice. That's not how he looks at you at all. He looks at you with, with, with so much love and commitment and devotion. He adores you the way you ought to adore this treasure that he is, the way this, this farmer and the way this merchant found their treasures. That's how he looks at you. See, the lesson of the story is, is that you can lose everything with joy in order to gain Christ, because that's a good deal. Nobody has ever gotten the short end of the stick with Jesus, never once. And you know, we read about missionaries of the past, right? You hear these stories of, like I said, about those Coptic Christians who could actually let them have their throats slit rather than deny Jesus. And you think to yourself, how are they, like, is that for super Christians? No, no, it's for people who, who value the kingdom. David Livingston, he's lived in the 1800s, 
He was the first English missionary to Africa. He traversed the entire continent back and forth. He was not made for the culture, obviously, and for the climate. This guy lived for 30 years. He lived with all kinds of pain and suffering. He had dysentery. What else do I have written down here? Intestinal tumors. He lived with parasites. He was in constant pain and had fever. He was feverish and sickly all the time. And he was, when he would come to villages, sometimes he would get beaten and chased out of the village and nobody wanted to, to listen to him. And, and he, he, he endured this for 30 plus years. And listen to what he wrote. For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthy activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. You got to understand, friends, Jesus is not asking you to do something stupid. This isn't for super Christians with like lots of faith that you and I can't muster up because we're just regular peeps with you know, regular lives. No, 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 no. Jesus doesn't ask you to do something stupid here. Those villagers thought that Johnny was nuts selling his house. He was the only sane one because he knew that he had a treasure that was worth far more than all his prized possessions put together. How stupid is it to give up 10 bucks to get a billion? Not at all, right? And that's what Jesus is saying here. Listen, if... Imagine you had a terminal disease. It was 100% fatal, and you had it. But I told you, look, I have the cure. I have found the cure, and it is 100% effective. The problem is, it's pretty super expensive. So you're probably going to have to sell your house and live in an apartment. You might have to give up your cottage uh, or your retirement fund. You know, maybe your nice furniture's got to go and you got to live on, you know, you got to sit on folding furniture. Uh, you, you used to go to restaurants weekly and that was a lot of fun. You're probably going to have to eat craft dinner twice a week in order to be able to buy this, uh, this, this cure. But I promise you, it will save your life. What would you say? Well, wouldn't you say, what good is all that other stuff if I'm going to die? Wouldn't you say, of course it's worth it. Of course it's worth it. It's a bargain if it means I get to live. Well, friends, listen. The gospel is that you have a terminal disease. We all are born with a terminal disease. It's called sin, and it eats away at us spiritually, and it will kill us one day. But Jesus is the cure. 
It's going to cost you your autonomy. It's going to cost you your independence. It's going to cost you your self-determination. All things that when you use them and exercise them, you just screw your life up with it anyway. It's going to cost you all of that. But so what? So what? Forgiveness is the most powerful, most valuable thing in the world. And Jesus says, give yourself to me and you will have it. It's better than landing your dream job. It's better than meeting the right person and spending your life with them. It's better than your wedding day or the birth of your children. It is better. That's what Jesus is saying. The question is, do you see it for the treasure that it is? If you don't, keep looking or keep digging because you can and you will. Let's pray. Father, what a treasure that is, Jesus. Help us to see him as the treasure he is. Forgive us for when we think anything else is more important to us than him. When it's our friends, when it's our job, when it's our bank account balance, when it's our reputation. Father, this guy, he looked like a complete idiot to the neighbors around him. But he sold it, sold all he had, got that field. The, the other merchants in the pearl business, in the pearl guild, thought that guy was crazy. But he didn't care. Help us not to care. Help us to do whatever it takes to have you and hold you and know you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.